Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, October 1st, 2018, is a Matthew Mike Gladstein Lecture in Biography. In this conversation, award-winning author and historian David W. Blight discusses his new biography of the 19th century writer, orator, and abolitionist Frederick Douglass with Princeton scholar Eddie S. Glaude, Jr. How y'all doing? Good, good. Welcome. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you. For doing this. No, no, this is my pleasure. It's a blessing. So let's jump into this. Is that okay? It is a wonderful book, so buy it. Um, So, David, talk a little bit about the archive Mm. that informs this magisterial text. I mean, you you had access to something that, that most folks just simply haven't had access to. Yeah, I had no intention... of ever writing a full life of Douglas. I had done an early book on, it was a dissertation on Douglas uh, in 1989. I had edited his two autobiographies, etc. But I had Douglas kind of out of my life, Uh, (laughs) except, except for giving talks on Douglas's narrative to teachers. And I went to Savannah, Georgia about 10 years ago to give a talk to teachers on Douglas's narrative because they were teaching it. And apologies to some of you who may have heard this story. But my host at the Georgia Historical Society said, there's a local collector who wants to meet you and have lunch. And I said, that's fine. That collector was Walter Evans, uh, who is now a dear, dear friend and to whom this book is in part dedicated. He took me over to his house and got out on his very estimable dining room table, his Douglas collection. Uh, Walter is, he deserves a moment here. Uh, Everywhere I speak about this, I give Walter as many moments as I can. He's an African-American retired surgeon who grew up in segregated Savannah. Mm -hmm. He came north for education. I went to the Michigan Medical School, practiced in Detroit for 30-some years which gave us a lot in common because I grew up in Flint, Michigan. Although he had season tickets to the Tigers and I could never afford them. (laughs) At any rate, Walter started collecting in the 1970s African-American rare books, manuscripts, and art. And in his remarkable house in Savannah is uh, a library of rare books Name any book in the African-American tradition. He has a first edition. But his house is just chocked full of archive boxes. Now, this stuff should be at the Beinecke Library at Yale, and we have tried hard to get him to sell it. And, Walter, if you're watching, they're still waiting. Um, But what it consisted of in essence are about 10 very large family scrapbooks kept by Douglas's sons during the last third of their father's life. Also a lot of family papers and letters 
photographs and a lot of other tidbits uh, that Walter bought over time, mostly from one other collector. Uh, and when I saw that collection, it was one of those moments a historian rarely has such luck where I realized, oh, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I'm going to do this. Uh, because if I didn't try to work with this material, somebody else would. Um, a lot of other Douglas scholars have now gone there. Uh, most of them I've introduced to Walter. Um, but if you want to work with his collection, you spend time on his dining room table. And I spent several spring breaks there, a lot of other weeks. But without that collection, I'd have never done this. And particularly that collection opens up uh, the, old, the life of the older Douglas, right, which we've right. talked a lot about, the, the aging Douglas, the patriarch Douglas. Um, and that's not the Douglas people generally know. They know the younger heroic Douglas from reading the autobiographies. So that new archive is the reason I did this. But the Douglas archive is, is extraordinary right. and in many forms. And now a lot of it digitized, though not all of it. I also had access to some missing issues of Frederick Douglass's newspaper, which the Yale libraries, uh, I won't tell you how they got them. Um, well, they bought them in some cases. But uh, there, there have always been missing issues of Frederick Douglass's newspaper. He published a newspaper for 16 years, and they are gold mines of information. And I got access now to, I believe, every issue. So the result has been this, is this extraordinary account of one of the most important American voices of the 19th century. And we get a story from radical outsider to political insider. It's a story that in some ways reveals a powerful and, and flawed human being an all-too-human Douglas in some ways, to echo Nietzsche here. Right. And so let's think about this in terms of three categories. Okay. Douglas as prophet. Mm -hmm. I Douglas, like that one. Douglas as writer. That's a good one, too. And Douglas as politician. Well, Douglas as politician. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about this prophet of freedom. Mm. I first have to say, Eddie has really read this book. <laughs> and it's a little scary. <laughs> we were sitting upstairs chatting away, and we had some time on a telephone, too. He's bringing up details that I can't hardly remember. Um, if you put the word prophet in your title, you better be ready to defend it. It's a big, big word. And all through these years of working on Douglas, you can't miss it in his rhetoric, uh, written and spoken, that he is deeply steeped in the Bible, and particularly in the Old Testament. Now, that's not surprising in the 19th century. Many people were. Most intellectuals were. Mm -hmm. Not all, but most. His first reading in serious ways comes uh, not just in reading the Bible, but in reading with ministers, with preachers in the streets of Baltimore and in certain churches in Baltimore. But what Douglas adopted isn't rocket science. He adopted the great story of the Old Testament, the idea that the temple of Jerusalem, th th this is what the great prophet Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos 
we're all saying that the temple had to be destroyed, that the people had become so sinful, so poisoned, they had to have a reckoning. And in that reckoning, many of them would die. Some of them would be sent into exile. Some of them would probably survive the exile. Some of them might even find a promised land. Douglas took that great story of Exodus and all of its parts along the way, and he did what so many Americans did, especially African Americans, and Eddie has written about this. It's one of the reasons I wanted him to interview me. He took the Exodus story and he applied it to his own people and to his own life and especially to his country. Now, it makes him at times a sometimes sort of bloodthirsty orator. It makes him unpleasant to read, especially in the midst of the Civil War when he becomes a a virulent war propagandist. He advocates the death of every white Southerner in words that are not pleasant, to say the least. He did what the Hebrew prophets did in that that confounding language of the Old Testament. He was able to find language at times to express a dilemma, to explain a historical condition, to explain an irony, to explain something terrible out of which there might be possibility. It sent me in the course of working on this book to some theology friends, theologian friends, I should say. Some of them may even be here. Donald Shriver, Don, if you're here tonight, God bless you, uh, who told me, David, read Walter Brueggemann and read so-and-so and and read so-and-so. My good friend Richard Rabinowitz said, uh, you've got to read Robert Alter and -and so-and-so and so-and-so. And I was trying to teach myself about the Hebrew prophets. The prophets Douglas was so adept at not just quoting, but paraphrasing and using. And I came to realize, uh, particularly from reading Abraham Heschel, the great Jewish theologian who wrote a book called The Prophets, among other books, that a prophet is sometimes that person in our society, in our lives, perhaps from the religious world, sometimes maybe more from a the political world, sometimes from both at the same time, who, uh, as Heschel said, sometimes speaks in octaves the rest of us can't quite hear. But we have recognition from it anyway. Or, as Heschel also said, the prophet is often that writer, that spokesperson, who has been shattered by some cataclysmic experience and therefore can shatter others. Mm. And Douglas had a terrible shattering in his 20 years as a slave, an experience that was burned into his soul and I think scarred him psychologically. I can't prove that, but I can suggest it. Um, All you need to do is to dip into one or another of many of his various great speeches. Take the 4th of July speech. Mm -hmm. If that's not a prophetic work of rhetoric, I'm not sure any American ever wrote one. Mm -hmm. It's the rhetorical masterpiece of American abolitionism. It is a classic Jeremiad, uh, defined as that kind of rhetoric, that story that calls the people in declension back to the altar, back to their cause, back to their principles, back to their proper way. Mm -hmm. 
or face damnation. Uh, the Fourth of July speech is like a symphony, uh, and the middle movement is horrible. Uh, the final movement barely lets you back up. Right. Um, so uh, th- th- there are many places in Douglas's life, uh, in the oratory and in his writing, um, when you can begin to find these elements of the prophetic. Was he always self-conscious of that? No. I don't know of any instance where he called himself a prophet. Hello, I'm here today to be your prophet. (laughs) A a real prophet doesn't do that. No. Heschel writes about that, too. A real prophet never tells you he's a prophet, but he's going to hurt you while he teaches you. And Douglas did that over and over again. Now, it doesn't mean that he's always right by any means. And doesn't mean that he's always prophetic by any means, especially the older Douglas, mm-hmm. who struggles with all kinds of con- you know, contradictions and conflicts in that last third of his life. So when you think about the kind of young Douglas and, and his prophetic voice, what is its relation to Garrisonianism, right? There's a sense in which there are these right. moments. I mean, part of the story mm-hmm. that you tell Right, is this ongoing act of self-creation that is Douglas's life. And in, you know, we have a bust of the young Douglas in African-American studies at Princeton in Stanhope Hall. Mm. And you can just see uh, the fires you know, in his eye, the fire in his eyes in the, in mm. the sculpture. Um, there's a, been a good sculpture. Oh, absolutely. You can see it. He's intense. Um, and, and that intensity has something to do with Right, the, his rage against the peculiar institution, uh, the, the the kind of moral stridency of Garrisonianism. But then you tell a story that in the midst of this, there's this insistence on Douglas's self sense of self possession. He chafes in interesting sorts of ways mm-hmm. uh, uh, mm-hmm. alongside the Garrisonians. Talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, Douglas sort of wrote himself into existence. Publicly. Uh, He's 20 years a slave in Maryland, Eastern Shore, Maryland, and then Baltimore. He escapes in 1838. He spends three years in New Bedford, Massachusetts, working at all kinds of menial jobs. Melville's territory. Indeed. (laughs) Well, he and Melville were in New Bedford during the same part of the same year, and lots of scholars have tried to have them meet. (laughs) But a novelist must have them meet because we can't find that meeting. Uh, it's just not there. Yeah. But doesn't mean I didn't use Moby Dick for, a, for an epigraph on that exactly, chapter. Exactly, exactly. Uh, when uh, Melville calls the prow of the ship a pulpit, I thought, whoo, that's an epigraph. Anyway, um, but he begins to also preach at the local AME Zion Church. Right. He's 20, 21, and 22 years old. He's just out of slavery. He's, he's not perfectly formed by any means, by any means, as an orator yet, or as a thinker, or anything yet. Who is at 22? But he gets discovered by Garrisonians, uh, the, the proponents of, of William Lloyd Garrison's uh, approach to ending slavery, which was uh, moral persuasion, moral suasionism. Garrison was a genuine radical, believed in immediatism, which means ending slavery now, not waiting for some gradual plan over decades or generations. 
He was a religiously driven, radical abolitionist. Garrison was. He also had some um, principles or tenets and strategies that were very difficult for a Frederick Douglass and, for that matter, a lot of other black abolitionists to follow, Mm -hmm. such as strict nonviolence, such as strict non-politics, that is, you did not get involved in political parties because political parties were complicit with slavery. They were dirty institutions. You had to get your hands dirty in politics. Douglas is going to take time to leave that one behind, but he's going to learn politics, as you're going to point out. He loved William Lloyd Garrison. I mean, Garrison was like a mentor. He was 12 years older. He was a mentor figure, a father figure to some degree, particularly for a young man who was a genuine orphan. One of the first things you need to know about Frederick Douglass, he barely knew his mother and never knew who his father was. Although he knew he was biracial. Mm -hmm. That's about all he could conclude. And he spent the rest of his life trying to figure it out. But the Garrisonians um, were Douglass's first abolitionist home. They were, he once called them his church. Mm -hmm. He said, they were my church, my community. Um, And once they discovered him, as a speaker, and took him out to Nantucket to do his first public speech in August of 1841, where he still was this trembling kid. He says, he shook in, I shook in my shoes as I got up to speak for the first time to white people. But they discovered in him a, a young man with a voice, not just an orator's voice, but a story. And he was already a good storyteller. Right. And he'd been preaching at the AME Zion Church from the text, every, you know, on Sundays when it was his job to preach. He knew how to do that. So for the next three and a half years, they hired him. He went out on the road, an itinerant abolitionist, a Garrisonian in mind and body, as I called him in here, mm-hmm. because that's the way he came to feel about it. Day in, day out, month in, month out, all across the north, at first just in New England and eventually all the way out to Ohio. Backbreaking tours. He would tour with groups, usually a troop of abolitionists. In those first three to four years, he traveled especially with Abby Kelly, Stephen Foster. They were married, uh, and some others. Um, Garrison himself at times. This is where Douglas cut his teeth as a public abolitionist, as an orator, and he, he told the line of Garrisonian principles, right. non-politics, non-violence, et cetera. Uh, at the end of this period, by 1845, he decided to sit down in the winter of 1844-45 and essentially sum up and write up all these stories he's been telling out on the circuit. Right. What he did in these first speeches was two things. He told his own tale. He told his story as a slave, which is all there in the narrative, episode after episode of the fight with Edward Covey or the learning to his literacy from Miss Sophia and all the beatings and the terrible uh, whippings that he witnessed and experienced. But he also perfected his favorite speech, at least at first, what was known as the slaveholder sermon. <laughs> the slaveholder sermon was Frederick Douglass trotting out those passages of the Bible where it said, "Slaves be obedient to your masters," and he would get up and he would mimic 
a pro-slavery minister. He'd prance around the stage. He'd go into a southern accent. He would pillory the hypocrisy of Christian slaveholding. And he was a star at it. It got to the point where wherever they would go as a speaking troupe, they'd always work. The system was they'd always have a resolution to speak to, whatever, two or three resolutions. You spoke to it or against it. And Douglas would start to speak to the resolution, but the audience would start saying, Fred, do the sermon. (laughs) And he'd say, all right, you know, and he'd break into the slaveholder's sermon. Uh, He kept doing that kind of speech for years and years and years. Um, But this is where he cut his teeth Mm -hmm. as a radical abolitionist, employing the only weapon they had, which was language, words, power of the word, spoken, and then written, of course, in newspapers. And so there's this sense in which uh, Douglas, cutting his teeth among the Garrisonians, right, uh, in some ways drawing on the language of the King James Bible, right. that writer's manual that he carried with him. It's a sense in which he understood, as Aristotle, the importance of rhetoric. Yeah. Um, and, and its role in... He'd never read Aristotle, no, never know, but he surely could have. But he seems to understand he, he, yeah. the way in which he's imbibed that lesson right. about the, the moral role of rhetoric in right. some interesting sorts of ways. That an orator must have a, a, a moral position, yeah. must reach the hearts of an right. audience, not just their mind. So the, auto, the, the, the biography in so many ways seems to be organized along the lines where each autobiography... Mm-hmm. Right, kind of mm-hmm. constitutes an anchor. Mm-hmm. So you have the early Douglas, so we have the narrative. You have my bondage and my freedom, right? We're this, this rageful Douglas, and then you have the life and times and its right. various iterations, right? Um, and so in each moment, as you say, Douglas is writing himself into existence. So there's a way in which Douglas understood the power of language. You call him an ironist in the text, mm-hmm. right? So He's doing this. He's running around the country with the Garrisonians. He's having some issues with them. They're, they're beginning to be a break, but he's fine-tuning his craft. Mm-hmm. And so talk a little bit about Douglas as this literary figure, as this, mm. this, this yeah. writer of sorts. Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a letter he writes to the editor of the first journal he first published something in. It was in the late fall of 1844. It's just as he was starting to write the narrative. He writes this first little essay. It's very short. Mm -hmm. And he says in the letter to that editor, but oh, to write for a book. It's like, wonder if I could write a book, he says. And all of us who are writers had that moment. The first time you imagine, I'm going to write a book. How about that? Or maybe I will write a book. Um, (laughs) And clearly he wanted to put this first narrative out just because he wanted to say, this is who I am, this is my story, don't doubt me, I'm real. Um, He wanted to name his oppressors, which he did. But Douglas came by language when he was a slave. And he continued over and over and over in his free life after after he escapes from slavery. And you got to remember, he lives... 20 years a slave, and then he lives another seven years as a fugitive slave until his British friends bought his freedom. Mm -hmm. But he is always in those years, the 1840s and the 1850s, and I'd say even into the Civil War years, 
trying to perfect his writing style, his craft. And the, 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 the remarkable thing about Douglas, and there are lots of flaws this man had, including even with his writing. I mean, all writing is flawed. Um, is he wrote in so many different genres. He wrote autobiography, 1,200 pages of autobiography, as Eddie has suggested. His life is punctuated with these three autobiographies. The first one in 1845, when he's only 27 years old. The second one, 10 years later, when he's 37, in the middle of the 1850s. His long-form masterpiece is My Bondage and My Freedom, a 350-page autobiography, which is a much more political book. It's in the midst of the great crisis of the 1850s over slavery. He's also lived a lot more, and he's become a very different kind of abolitionist. The third autobiography writes in 1881. Uh, the old man kind of summing things up, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, it's a... It's a it's a text that's full of name-dropping. He wants to know all the famous people he knows, the presidents <laughs> he's advised, and on and on and on. On the other hand, for us scholars, it's chocked full. It's a goldmine of just stuff, stories, events, details. What we know about his relationship with John Brown, especially down to the eve of right. the attack of Harper's Ferry, we know from that text. And then he revises the third one another time in 1892. So... The autobiographies are one form, but he, he mastered the short-form political editorial, the political essay for his newspaper. He could write in a very different voice there. He could, he could go after a political issue, whether it's the Kansas-Nebraska Act or the Dred Scott decision or whatever it is, and just kind of nail it in 400 words. He also wrote these elaborate speeches yeah. as texts. The Fourth of July speech is a, a masterpiece of writing first. And he, there's a letter where he said, I worked for three weeks on this. And he says, I worked longer on this than anything I've ever delivered. And you can tell. And if I could ever get him in a room and ask him, I'd, uh, one of my hundred questions I would ask him is, what did you read before that speech? <laughs> Come on. Where are your notes? Um, and then he wrote one work of fiction. Yeah. He wrote a novella. Some would say the autobiographies are part fiction. He'd been practicing that already. <laughs> but in 1852-53, he writes a novella called The Heroic Slave, based on the rebellion led by a slave named Madison Washington on the ship The Creole, a real event. Uh, so he wrote it, and he tried poetry. There is a fair amount of poetry Douglas wrote. It's not his best form. <laughs> um, he wrote prose poetry. He's a prose poetry writer. He had at times, magic with metaphors. Uh, my friend, great historian Jim McPherson, once wrote a little essay called How Abraham Lincoln Won the Civil War with Metaphors. Some of you may remember that essay by Jim. I wouldn't say Douglas won the Civil War with metaphors, but he certainly taught us a lot in the 19th century by his metaphors. He had a way of capturing a moment or a dilemma sometimes in a metaphor that he would draw from the Bible or Shakespeare or just make it up. Um, so he, he becomes a skilled writer who never is completely satisfied with his craft, which I think is true of most writers. There's this wonderful passage on page 259 that I just wrote, yes, with an exclamation point. I knew he was going to do it. This is, this is Blight's prose. All great autobiography 
is about loss, about the hopeless but necessary quest to retrieve and control a past that forever slips away. Memory is both inspiration and burden, method and subject, the thing one cannot live with or without. So Douglas is almost- That's not bad. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty good, right? It's almost manic, right? In the way in which he's constantly returning yeah. to, and you know, we talked about this earlier, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with James Baldwin, and mm. Jimmy is constantly retelling the story of his, of his stepfather, right? He's constantly telling that story, and he's telling it in order to possess it, mm-hmm. because he's, in telling it, it's an act of self-creation, mm-hmm. right? So he's, he's rendering this narrative in order to, in some ways, constitute a self, this is what we mean by writing oneself into existence. And so you have this moment where you said Emerson, you know, Douglas is kind of the slave-born embodiment of Emerson's man, the reformer. Mm-hmm. He's Whitman's, and you quote a passage from Whitman's song, I Myself, right, where he's that. And then there's this moment where this gorgeous chapter on, on Douglas and Lincoln, mm-hmm. where you give an account of the second founding through they're back and forth. And what emerges is these two figures become absolutely central to the founding, the second founding of the country. And then, of course, at the end, the old man still is trying to find the day he was born. Yeah. As he's trying to write Life and Times, as he's revised, he calls. I mean, there's something going on here, right? I mean, it's about memory loss, trying to retrieve some Douglas. And then I, mean, I got to say this one, there's this another line. I just come quote him at him, see, you know, just to let him know I read it. Because <laughs> there's something, remember we began by saying he's all too human, mm-hmm. powerful and flawed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You give us a sense of the interior life as much as the, the archive will allow you. There's this one. Probably a little more than the archive. Yeah. But there's this moment where you quote Douglas where he says, in effect, um, his experience of slavery, and I'm paraphrasing this part, uh, indelibly affected his ability for filial affection. Mm-hmm. At the way he even loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I speculate on that, uh, because, and others have. Douglas is scarred by this life as a slave child, teenager, and young adult. He experienced about every kind of brutality slavery could throw at you, uh, especially the emotional brutality. Mm-hmm. And he said that himself many times. Uh, protecting his mind, he said, was much harder than protecting yeah. his body. Yeah. Uh, he was beaten savagely by at least two, one owner and one overseer. He witnessed all kinds of savage beatings uh, at the White House plantation. He even witnessed Colonel Lloyd himself, the owner of the whole place, beat yeah. old Barney, yeah. the guy who kept the carriage house, to a bloody pope one day. Douglas was like seven years old witnessing this stuff. And one of, there are many elements of where, many moments where memory is so important in trying to understand Douglas. But I found one of them, and I didn't think this ahead of time until I was writing those first chapters. What do we remember of our childhood? 
How do we remember childhood? How do we find prompts to remember childhood? He is recreating that childhood over Over and over in his life. And he is telling us over and over how terribly important it was. Both for all this brutality of slavery, but also for his humane sensibilities. He loved Lucretia Auld, this white woman who fed him biscuits out the window if he would sing for her. He loved her. He loved Sophia Auld when she taught him to read until she stopped teaching him to read. Uh, And he talks about how an angel could become a devil. Slavery could make an angel into a devil. Um, But the ways that he cultivates that childhood memory to try to understand what it did to him Mm. is remarkable. And it got me off reading a bunch of child psychology, most of which I didn't use. You know, if you go and read a... No offense to anyone. (laughs) I tried to read a bunch of child psychology on how do we remember childhood. And I read a whole bunch of it, and I thought, "Eh, let's go back and read Douglas. (laughs) But but then later in life, he's all about memory. He's about the memory of the Civil War and trying to preserve that abolitionist, emancipationist, what I call it anyway. Uh, He's trying to remember victory. He's trying to remember, he's trying to make the country remember that emancipation is the greatest result of this war and the greatest responsibility now of the nation. But he's also trying to line up his own life. Anyone in here who's ever tried to write anything in the genre of memoir knows that you're trying constantly to figure out, well, what goes in and what doesn't go in and what what can I trust in my memory and what can I not trust? what in my memory makes a great story and what doesn't? But it's also true at the end of the day that Douglas seems to have believed that he had one great story to tell, and that was his story. And he just kept doing it and kept doing it. At the same time, he wrote great speeches on political issues. He wrote great speeches on philosophical issues. He wrote great speeches on legal issues. Um, but his, the, the tale of his own life, is always what he's searching for. And as Eddie just suggested, I think only three or four months before he died, he writes to Benjamin Ald, who was one of Thomas Ald's sons. Thomas Ald had been one of his owners, and potentially his father, although we don't know. He writes to Benjamin Ald and said, do you know when my birth date was? Um, I can't find it. Can you help me at all? Which was also another way of, of asking, is your father my father? Yeah. He'd even been to Thomas Auld's deathbed, as some of you know. He went when Thomas Auld was dying. It turns out he didn't die for another nine months, but it seemed like it was his deathbed. Douglas went back to the Eastern Shore about four times after the war, eventually with paparazzi in tow. I mean, everywhere he went, he had the press with him. He went to Thomas Auld's deathbed and asked him, are you my father? He didn't get a yes, which is... One of the reasons I don't think Ald was his father. But he never stops trying to figure out his paternity. Mm-hmm. Um, because he knows he has white kinfolk. He has lots of white kinfolk. He had black kinfolk he didn't know. And they found him later in life. He not only had four surviving adult children, but he had 21 grandchildren. And he had some fictive siblings who either adopted him or he adopted them out of slavery. All of them end up at Cedar Hill, the big house in Washington, at one time or another. They all die there, and they're all buried from there. 
Cedar Hill became a place of funerals yeah. in the 1880s and 1890s. How many of the 21 grandkids About died? 14 of the grandchildren died in infancy or by their teenage years. Now, the death of children in the 19th century was not uncommon, right. but this was extraordinary. They lost four or five in one month in a diphtheria epidemic, over and over and oh. over. Um, so, so let me... He never let, writes about any of that in the no, autobiographies, of no. course. But anyway. So let me ask you about... So we've talked about Douglas the prophet. Yeah. Douglas the writer. <coughs> Douglas the politician, the political mm-hmm. pragmatist, the mm-hmm. Republican, the blood shirt, mm-hmm. yeah. bloody shirt waving figure, the, the, jealously guard, the one who jealously guarded his position as the black leader, mm-hmm. the old man who was famous the perils of celebrity. Talk about this Douglas. Yeah, he didn't like the young rivals either. <laughs> um, Douglas loved being king of the hill. And those who tried to knock him off, he, he did some ugly things back. Anyway, <laughs> Douglas learns politics in the crucible of the 1850s, the decade that leads to the Civil War. He, as a Garrisonian, he was supposed to leave political parties alone. Although Garrison himself was a very political man. He constantly quoted speeches by Henry Clay in The Liberator and then said, don't vote. It's got to be a bit of a contradiction (laughs) to some of his followers, to say the least. But Douglas, by 1850, 51, 52, 53, into the early 1850s, as the slavery crisis, especially over its expansion, is exploding across the country and the political parties are tearing themselves apart, Douglas comes to realize This is a hugely political question as well as a moral question. He also gets, like a lot of Garrisonian moral suasionists, he became quite impatient with moral persuasion. You can keep trying to change a person's heart forever and ever and ever. At some point, you may just need to bend somebody's will and change a law if you can. He loved politics. But he only shouldered up to it carefully in the 1850s. And um, at first, he considered himself a free soiler. He goes to the first free soil convention in 1848, and they called him up to speak. He didn't quite know what to do with that first Republican Party in 1854, although he was kind of excited about it. Here's a political party now that says it's anti-slavery. It's certainly against the expansion of slavery. And he begins to develop. This is... I spent two or three chapters on this. He begins to develop a kind of hard-earned pragmatism Mm -hmm. about the crisis over slavery. And he realizes you may have to make relationships here with people you do not like, whose principles you can't stand, but they actually can make things happen. He began to realize that the Republican Party from 54 to 56, 58, and then in 1860 when Lincoln runs is causing the South grief. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. He also came slowly to trust some Republicans, like Sam and Chase, Charles Sumner, uh, Ben Wade, and a few others. He doesn't know Lincoln yet. He knows Lincoln by reputation. He followed Lincoln in the Lincoln-Douglas debates uh, a lot. And he actually followed Stephen Douglas a lot, too. They had quite an exchange at times. And I was lucky to have a fellow at our center at Yale who was studying that. Turns out Stephen Douglas and Frederick Douglas had quite an exchange with each other. Mm. I'd never known that. Anyway, 
He becomes a Republican for sure in the Civil War because the Republican Party was waging war against slavery. At least it eventually was. And as many in this room know, because you know you're Lincoln, uh, Douglas was a ferocious critic of Abraham Lincoln in the first year, year and a half of the war because the Union government was not moving against slavery. In fact, it was protecting fugitive slaves and sending them back to slavery or trying to. But with the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, the final proclamation of, 18, of January 1863, uh, Douglas not only changed his tune, he appropriated Lincoln as Lincoln appropriated him. And he saw that what was now the Civil War had now become what Lincoln had not wanted it to become. In Lincoln's famous words, he did not want it to become a remorseless revolutionary struggle, but that's exactly what it had become. The rest of Douglas's life, after 1864, he would campaign every year for the Republican candidate for president. The Republican Party would decide which states to send him to. Uh, if there were pockets of free black voters in a state, he'd be sent there. There were other sections of the country they thought he would work well in, Upper New England, and for some reason, Indiana. He was always sent to Indiana. Indiana was a swing state in the 19th century, folks. Um, and Douglas would campaign week after week for Hayes, Garfield, Blaine, etc. And sometimes he'd wonder why. Because that Republican Party was really changing. Uh, and abandoning his cause, the cause of emancipation, civil rights, uh, black voting rights, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. But he never gave up on the Republican Party. And just to round that out a bit, it's quite an issue today. Uh, like all great questions in history that matter, this has a huge legacy because today's, let's just call them libertarian, the Republican right, the libertarian right, in, the Cato Institute right, loves to appropriate Douglas because he was a a staunch proponent of self-reliance, of blacks raising themselves by their own institutions and their own hard work and their own thrift and so on. But every black leader in the 19th century to speak of was a proponent of self-reliance. That is not unusual. But sometimes the ways this gets portrayed today uh, in political discussion, the way Douglas gets appropriated now, it drives me a bit crazy because to do that, you have to ignore his entire life as right. a radical abolitionist. But it's good news because <laughs> Douglas has become a little bit like Abraham Lincoln. Everyone wants to have him on their side. Everyone wants to claim Douglas. He's on our side. He's on, no, he's on our side. What would Douglas do if this? I get asked this all the time. What would Douglas think of Black Lives Matter? What would Douglas think of the Me Too movement? What would Douglas think of this and think of that? What would Douglas think of Donald Trump's praise of it? Whoa! <laughs> I thought that might not come up tonight. <laughs> He'd say, nah, I don't know. nah. no. No. I, before go we go to questions, though, I, you, you do something so wonderful and beautiful in the text. You are so attentive to Anna. Oh, God. Say a word about Anna. Anna Doug- Murray Douglas was Douglas's first wife, his wife of 44 years. He meets her in Baltimore, probably in a church. Don't know for sure. 
when he was 18 or 19 and she was three years older. She was born free out on the eastern shore, just on the other side of the Tuckahoe River from where he was born. They probably played at the same mill when they were kids, but they didn't know each other until Baltimore. They fell in love in Baltimore. He escaped from slavery uh, in late August, 1838, and Anna had the extraordinary bravery to pack her bags and wait for a letter when Frederick got to New York City at the foot of Chambers Street, down on the lower west side, and found himself safe within 48 hours on Lispenard Street at David Ruggles' house. Mm. He writes a letter back to um, Baltimore. Don't, we don't know who he wrote that letter to, but whoever he wrote it to went immediately to Anna, and Anna took the same three trains and the same three ferries and was in New York in the same 38 hours or so to join him. And uh, that was an extraordinary act of bravery. She was free. She was born free. Uh, and if they'd been caught, uh, well, we wouldn't have ever known about either one of them. Now, she remained his helpmate uh, for all of those decades, the mother of his five children. She remained illiterate all of her life, by and large, and uh, it was a problem. The most uh, famous African-American man of letters in the world, the most famous black man in the world, was married to an illiterate woman um, who could not be part of that professional intellectual life um, in, in meaningful ways. Uh, she was very much part of his life in a lot of other ways. We know what we know about her, uh, yeah. not entirely, but largely from what the children wrote about her. And one of the things that's in the Walter Evans collection in Savannah are two new little narratives written by two of the sons. We always had the one that the daughter wrote, but uh, Rosetta, but there are two narratives there, one entitled Growing Up in the Douglas Home. It's, it's their little narratives about their parents. Um, so at every stage, I try to find my way into Anna's life. You can't make, there are no documents that Anna wrote. Um, you know, no letters. Uh, but there are lots of little testimonies about her. She kept account books. She kept a bank book. She did, she did numbers uh, when he didn't. <laughs> uh, and she provided a home. And never, if you get to know Douglas at all, you'll, you'll sense this. He was desperate to make and preserve a home because he had never had one. Um, and that's what she represented to him. So let's go to some of the questions from the audience. Great. So one of the first questions, I heard that Frederick Douglass was biased against Native Americans. Is this true? Somebody's read a copy of the page, Bruce. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, biased is a, <laughs> that's one of those big words. Uh, yes. He, uh, he trafficked in some Indian stereotypes, no question. For example, uh, when he sometimes would make the case after the Civil War in particular for the uprightness and the ambitions of black people, that white people should stop worrying about black folk. Let them vote. Let them own land. Let them get educated. 
they want to be Americans, he would often trot out the image of the vanishing Indian. And he would sometimes do it in not very pleasant language, like the Indian just wants to wrap himself in a blanket and walk off into his hills, whereas the black man wants to own a company and wants to get into the best school and so forth. It's not, uh, it's not pretty. Uh, it's, a, it's a 19th century stereotype that was all over the culture, but when he... I have, I've had students read chapters of this in a seminar I taught, and it's jarring when they read it. They want Douglas to be, you know, an everywhere and forever advocate of Indian rights, and they want him to be against the reservations. He thought the reservations were probably the proper yeah. thing. Yeah. So, all too human. Yeah, all too human. Comment on the relationship between Douglas and Grant. Oh, uh, it's very important. It never got very close, which I think was to Douglas's chagrin. Uh, Grant becomes president, of course, in 19, or 1868. Um, Douglas had been a distant admirer of Grant's, like all Yankees were. Um, Grant appoints him to a commission in 1870, 71, the Santo Domingo Commission, which was a commission sent to um, what is now um, the Dominican Republic to discuss with the leadership of the Dominican, or with Santo Domingo, whether the U.S. would annex it. The Grand Administration was trying to annex Santo Domingo. Douglas was, um, he was actually the secretary for this commission. He wasn't an official member of the commission. Um, And he took one of his sons along with him. And he kept a diary on this three-month trip into the Caribbean. Actually, he went swimming in the surf one day and almost drowned on that, according to his diary. But Grant put him on that commission, and Douglas advocated for the annexation. Douglas became an expansionist after the Civil War. There there, there, There are reasons for that. Lots of abolitionists did. Douglas, at this point, this is 1870, 71. Reconstruction hasn't fallen apart yet. Right. This is just the myth. The Klan is raging everywhere. But Reconstruction hasn't fallen apart yet. Frederick Douglass was, a, was among a large group of former abolitionists who now argued the United States is now an abolitionist country. We are the nation of emancipation, and we should export it. We should take the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments out to the world, especially still slave societies like in the Caribbean, and give them our ideas. That's not unfamiliar to us. Americans of all stripes have done this for a very long time. But when they come back from the Santo Domingo Commission, Grant invited the regular commissioners to the White House for a special dinner and didn't invite Douglas. Not a pleasant thing. But he always, at least from a distance, admired Grant. In fact, in 1876, he wanted Grant to run again. He didn't know how to trust the other candidates. Despite the despite the, the Despite the scandals. <laughs> I mean, the, there were so many Grant scandals. Uh, he thought Grant would probably, uh, well, he wanted, he wanted the Republicans to win. He didn't, he didn't think Grant could lose. Um, but they never had a truly close relationship, which has always made me triply fascinated with the speech Douglas gives in 1876. It's his second greatest speech at the unveiling of the Lincoln Monument in Lincoln Park in Washington, the Freedmen's Memorial. Ulysses Grant as president was sitting right up in the front row when Douglas gave that speech. Mm. 
and Grant pulled the rope that unveiled that. And I went to Grant's papers to find out, what did Grant think? What did Grant think? Nothing there. <laughs> Grant must have gone back and had a nap at the White House. <laughs> Didn't say a word about that. Speech. Wow. He should have. Yeah. So how did the rise of Jim Crow impact Douglas? That's a really interesting question. Well, the rise of the, the rise of Jim Crow in the early 19th yeah. century really had an impact on him because Douglas got thrown off lots of trains. He got Jim Crowed more times in his life than he could ever count by hotels, by taverns, by restaurants, by trains, by stagecoaches. It got to be a source of humor for him at times. And, uh, oh, uh, sorry. Um, but later, the, the period we often talk about, mm -hmm. the rise of Jim Crow by the 1880s, 1890s, Douglas lives to see it. He lives till 1895. Mississippi passes the first disfranchisement law in 1890. Right. Uh, Douglas lives to see uh, the beginnings of bitter segregation uh, in the late 80s and into the 90s. He doesn't live to see its fruition into the early 20th century, but he sees it. But nothing about it, as much as I could tell, surprised him because he had experienced all of the antebellum Jim Crow. Uh, over and over and over. Uh, he, although he always referred to things like being Jim Crowed or a form of segregation, legal or otherwise, as another variation of pro-slavery ideas. He would just call it the pro-slavery vision reconstructed, the pro-slavery tradition brought back to life. For him, it was the resurrection of slavery. That's the way he knew how to understand it. That wonderful phrase he, he uses, the infinite manifestations of racism as our national faith. Yeah, yeah. He calls racism a national faith. Well. There you have it. It had been. So how but it's also why the Civil War and Emancipation was so important, because that had, he hoped, killed it. Or begun its long, you know, but it had. Then we see the backsliding. Right. How influential was Douglas in getting the women's suffrage resolution passed at the Seneca Falls Convention? Very important in Seneca Falls. I don't think he was crucial in getting the resolution passed. He was the only male speaker, the only black participant who signed the Seneca Falls Declaration of Rights. That he was there, that he gave his presence to this event, was huge. Uh, and he was from... From that time on, and even before, always a women's rights man. He wrote essays entitled, I'm a women's rights man. He was always for women's rights. He is also a patriarch in many ways in his private life. That didn't make him that unusual for some reformers and radicals and abolitionists. But he was all in on women's suffrage, on women's economic rights, and women's civil rights until the 14th and 15th Amendments. And he has a terrible breakup, as some of you yeah. probably know, with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan Anthony. Yeah. And Susan Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, by any measure, misbehaved badly in the way they treated Douglas with all kinds, especially Stanton, racist epithets, uh, not just aimed at Douglas, but aimed at black men. 
they were fed up. They didn't want to wait any longer. They wanted women in the 15th Amendment. But everybody, with one eye open, understood if women's suffrage had been put in the 15th Amendment, it never would have passed. Everyone knew that. But to Stanton and Anthony at that point, it was put us in or uh, you can have your country back. Douglas didn't have that choice. It's one of those many moments in his life when he has to make decisions and choices about this political issue or that political issue or that strategy or that strategy. And uh, it's uh, often uh, the horns of a dilemma. Mm -hmm. Why did British supporters help Douglas buy his freedom and not the American abolitionist? Whoa. Well, two reasons. He spends 1845 to 47, about 18, 19 months in the British Isles when he's still in his 20s. Huge turning point in his life. He gets treated like a, a hero most of the time in Ireland, Scotland, and Britain. And to this day in Ireland, they've practically made him a yeah. patron saint. He only lived four months there, and they have two monuments to him. It's kind of crazy, but anyway... Uh, but his British friends began to realize, well, first, there were a lot of British abolitionist friends who tried to coax him and convince him to stay in England, move his family over to England, adopt England. He actually thought about it. It's clear. There are some letters, but he couldn't. His cause was here. His family was here. And the idea that he was going to move Anna and uh, four small children uh, uh, to England made no sense. Um, so the Richardson sisters from Newcastle led the effort to raise the money and did all the negotiation and the letter writing with Thomas and Hugh Ald and bought his freedom for $730. And Douglas would not return to the United States until he had the official document in his hands, mm -hmm. um, that he was free. Uh, the other part of the answer is that the Garrisonians, although not Garrison himself, to his credit, the Garrisonians were very strict moralists, and they said to purchase a slave's freedom was to be complicitous with slavery. You don't pay slaveholders. Douglas's answer to that was, thank you very much, I'll take my freedom. <laughs> you know, it's better than not having it. So one last thing before we end. Sure. Douglas is telling his story. Mm -hmm. And in so many ways, Douglas's story is America's story. Mm -hmm. What should we take from this, in this current moment we find ourselves in, Professor Blight? What does this story teach us? Uh, you didn't tell me you were going to ask that one. Um, that history is never over. That history doesn't only have cycles, it has terrible surprises. Hmm. And when you think you've won a victory, watch out. He experienced that in his life over and over. He's one of those rare reformers, especially radical reformers, who lives to see his cause triumph in the middle of his life in his 40s. And frankly, almost beyond his belief. As late as 1858 and 59, an abolitionist had little reason to actually believe they were going to live to see slavery destroyed and a new constitution crafted out of it. Not going to happen. It happened. But then he also lives 30 more years 
to see that very victory, those causes, those constitutional amendments, those civil rights acts, all but wiped out or erased by the Supreme Court, by terrorist violence, and by a politics that could not and would not preserve it. The trajectory of his life uh, covers most of the 19th century. It covers the greatest transformative event in our history, the Civil War. And it covers that great story of from slavery to freedom, which we still in so many ways are living. We're still every day fighting over how to define that 14th Amendment and what equality before law means. God knows we're still fighting over the Supreme Court. (laughs) Oops. On that Uh, note, thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.